I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. All right. So today we're talking about anxiety and how to talk to kids uh, about anxiety. So without further ado, I'll let my guests introduce themselves. We're going to just do our name, our pronouns, where we're from, our relationship with kids and what your connection to anxiety is. So my name is Ashley. I am a mother to a 20 month old uh, whose name is Hazel. Uh, My background is in a couple of different things, but I, I, um, mainly work in child welfare research now. I'm a a social worker. I also do uh, hospital social work and I have a background in uh, emergency mental health, inpatient mental health, outpatient mental health, as well as critical care, uh, social work, um, and a little bit of everything else too, just because I'm also, uh, I'm casual, so I cover everywhere. But those those are my main coverage areas. My pronouns are uh, she and her. I live in Montreal. Uh, I have been in Montreal for about 12 years, uh, but I'm originally from Calgary, Alberta. Definitely deal with anxiety at work. But I also, I grew up having anxiety, not knowing that I had anxiety because I had a mother who was very anxious and very much normalized, like anxiety. I also uh, was diagnosed with uh, PTSD. I guess it would have been 2013 or 14 and uh, worked through uh, a, lot of, a lot of therapy to, to work through uh, my post-traumatic stress disorder. And at some point I decided to start taking medication and, uh, to, and it uh, definitely was like a night and day uh, scenario for me realizing that once the medication started working for me, I was like, didn't realize that I had been kind of living in this like very anxious place my whole life. And that wasn't, and I didn't know that that was like an abnormal place to, and that like, other people didn't experience the level of anxiety that I experienced. And I, I was very lucky with my medication. I had a doctor who recommended started on one medication. We started with one dose and it just worked. <laughs> I realize that that is not the truth, uh, the trajectory for everyone, and that's not what other people's experience is. Um, I did go up when I was uh, when I when I was pregnant. I did go up on my dose because my blood volume was increased, so the dosage was not enough. And I've stayed on a slightly higher uh, dosage just because it feels also pretty normal for me. So we've just kept it at that, and 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 it's been working well for me. It's still a very low dose, but it's uh, enough. So my name is Amy. I use she and her pronouns. I'm from Montreal. I grew up on the South Shore and I live in Montreal now. I have a son who's nine years old. His name is Ambrose. I've had an anxiety disorder for a few years. I did have PTSD actually as a teenager that was undiagnosed and untreated. I've done work on that mostly on my own. And then as an adult, I've touched on some of those things in therapy a little bit. And I believe I had some postpartum depression as well with my son. But again, I managed those things mostly on my own. And in both cases, they didn't really incapacitate me. I think in part because the demands on teenagers and on like moms who are staying at home are such that I could manage the demands of my life. And then a whole lot of things happened a few years ago. So I was leaving my ex. I had just started grad school. What else? I got a pretty major infection. I had to be hospitalized at the end of my first semester of my master's degree. And I was trying to figure out how to find somewhere to live. 
so it was a lot at the same time. And then, you know, just like keeping up with grad school work and I was working at the same time. So it was a lot. I think basically the next semester, so like I moved at the end of November and I had an amazing and supportive partner. My, uh, I'm polyamorous. And so I had, you know, social support and things like that. And then the next semester, things were kind of calm, but I didn't feel better. And it just kind of stuck around. I think the December, right, so I moved in November and I started being aware that I was having some anxiety, that I was having some trouble managing anxiety, but I didn't realize it would be a chronic thing. I just thought, well, I'm going through a lot. It makes sense. I bought one book on coping with anxiety and it talked about different manifestations like procrastination and rumination and that kind of stuff. And that gave me a bit of a, a map because it was so foreign to me what I was experiencing. And it gave me some tips and that was good. And I thought that would be enough. And so the next year started in the winter, you know, January, and I got a promotion at work. That was nice. But yeah, things didn't feel better and things started to just feel worse and worse. And for months, I didn't really know. I mean, again, it had been kind of sinking in gradually. So I didn't really know what kind of help to seek. I didn't have any frame of reference. I had felt depressed before in my life and I had experienced intrusive thoughts from PTSD. But this was unlike anything really that I had experienced before. And I'm always a pretty organized person. I always like to tackle issues pretty head on. So in a lot of ways, the anxiety that I deal with, which is mostly like it comes up as rumination, felt very natural. And it felt like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an independent woman. I'm taking care of my shit. I have a lot to juggle. So of course, I'm thinking about these things all the time. So in some ways, it didn't feel unusual, except that I had no energy. You know, I'd come out of the shower and just sit on my bed and I kind of couldn't move. And I was sleeping a lot and I was nitpicking a lot and I became extremely insecure and jealous in my relationship. There was a lot going on. And then it was causing so many, I wouldn't say problems in my relationship. I was saying it was causing a lot of challenges and there were a lot of missed opportunities for connection and pleasure with my partner because I was just so wrapped up in my, in my fears all the time that in May, I think I said, okay, I'm going to call my doctor and I made an appointment with my doctor and I also got on a wait list at the Argyle Institute where I had therapy for a little bit. Um, yeah, I also had a very good experience there. And so then I started medication, I think, in the summer. Oh, I should say, I have a background as a pharmacy technician and I'm a medical librarian. So I had a lot of thoughts about medication. There were things that I knew I wanted to avoid. I was very worried about taking SSRIs because I really love sexuality and I was very worried about sexual side effects. So initially I was like, I really don't want to try an SSRI. And I know that mirtazapine is really well tolerated and so on and so on. So she said, okay, my doctor said, sure, we'll try mirtazapine. And that worked pretty well for me, but it made me extremely tired and I was eating a lot all the time. I gained a lot of weight, which was fine, but I was just so tired. Eventually we switched to something else and then I went off it for a little bit. And now I guess I restarted medication in the fall of last year or something like that. Yeah. So that's been great. So I think my son has really seen me over a whole lot of different points of this where I think he had trouble anyway a little bit when his dad and I split up you know when questioned he said it was fine but he would miss when we all lived together he was a bit stressed and I could see it he was acting out a little bit at school and I felt so overwhelmed and guilty about that you know and I felt really terrible but I felt so unable to meet his needs I would try I would try to like you know create more structure and make sure we had fun little dates out together and make things normal. We lived really, really close to his dad, but there was that. That was a hard period for him when I think he was aware of my anxiety. It was not going well and he didn't understand what it was. 
So that was at one end of the spectrum, you know, and then I've gotten so much more aware of anxiety. I know all, you know, I have had so many versions of an anxiety plan at this point. I know the resources in Montreal, like I'm pretty on top of it now. So he's really gone through the gamut and now I'm pretty stable. So I'm at the point where he's seen me doing well. He knows I have anxiety. He knows what it's called, but then you can imagine kind of a grid laid out. And he's been, I think at every position in there, like not knowing, knowing mom's doing well, mom's not doing well. So yeah, I'll get, I guess, more into how I talk to him about it. But I think that's sort of where it's been for me. I think something that's interesting that was sort of a similarity between both of those stories is like the experiencing that thing and not knowing. And I think it's just like, it goes to show how we don't talk about mental health and so, and there's just like this taboo around talking about mental health. And so I think that a lot of people, you know, go through these things and don't, you know, don't even know, like you were saying, Ashley, like, you don't even know that it's not, you know, normal. I mean, I don't like to use the word normal, but like, it's not like neurotypical or whatever. And it's just, it's really, I think it just really goes to show that we need to talk about mental health and talk about our experiences. Hi, my name is Ethne. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm in Montreal. More specifically, I live off island in Chateauguay. And I have two children, um, aged four and eight. And my relationship with these subjects is, well, firstly and foremost, I'm a mom. And secondly, I suffer from anxiety disorder, as well as um, depression and ADHD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they tend to, the anxiety and related disorders tend to sort of be coupled with other things very often. Yeah. And a lot of people that I know tend to kind of have also that comorbid existence with ADHD as well, which makes it extra exciting because you are, because, you know, one of the, at least for me, one way that my ADHD manifests itself is just like a very constant flow of thoughts and think about this and think about that. And then when you already are dealing with anxiety and then on top of that you have this kind of like tendency to perseverate on things and you think fast on top of that it's just like this you can it's very easy to get caught in that kind of negative downward spiral sometimes i typically ask the same question every episode because we talk about sort of these things that these questions that often kind of catch us off guard that kids might ask and so i'm curious if there's ever been a time where a child has asked you a question that you weren't prepared to answer it could be related to anything doesn't necessarily have to be about anxiety it's interesting you know i would say generally no i read that question i thought no i feel actually very committed as a parent to answer my kids questions there have been a couple of times when i've told them like you don't need to know that but then it's really like then he's not asking like an abstract question he's asking something about my life and i'm like you don't need to know all the details of this you know like he doesn't know where i keep my toys and things like that that's fine but i mean if he's asking me a question about pretty much anything about mental health or science i think because because partly i have a background in philosophy because partly in Sejup I took some child psych classes because partly I see parenting as like part of my mission of being like a radical person in the world and making a difference it's really really important to me to take his curiosity seriously and to like equip him with knowledge of the world so usually I give him answers that answer his question and then add a bit of context I was thinking about that yesterday for some reason I don't remember what prompted it but it's very rare that I just answer the question I also try to give some like yeah, uh, what what is the greater context? Like if he's asking me like, oh, can kids drink tea? 
And I mean, some at some point in his life, he might see this as like, oh my God, mom, I just want you to answer the question. But like, he'll ask me that and be like, well, you know, we could look at like the recommended caffeine per weight for children. Plus, you know, like in Japan, children drink green tea and like, I'll, you know, and historically this is seen as like, blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of how I do things, even though, I mean, I've done that since he was pretty small and people would find it a bit odd, but I think it's great. And he's, he's becoming a great kid. So if he's ever asked me anything about anxiety, which I don't really know that he has very much, it's been conversations that I've initiated, I would say, mostly. So there's nothing like that that I would shy away from. And I try to be ahead of the curve a little bit. You know, my partner used to work as um, a youth worker with teenagers. And I think so just like kind of the extended family, we're like really on the same page about how we want to approach that. Yeah. And I, I just want to quickly say for folks who might not be in Quebec, CEGEP is basically, uh, it's basically the equivalent of college. It's like in between high school and university if you decide to go to university. <laughs> I'm just trying to think about that because usually me and and my kid's dad were separated, but we have like, a, we have an awesome, beautiful co-parenting relationship. Yeah, it's, it was super challenging, but we're both really like, we still do holidays together. Like he comes over here for Christmas. So kind of like our approach has always been like try to be um as truthful as possible but within a within a way that they can understand it i don't know if i've ever truly gone to a question from them that i wasn't able or prepared to answer i think one thing was just i forget the context or something but my son heard the word um rape and he's a very like naturally curious kid and he's really into like language and learning new words. So he's just like, oh, what does that word? What does that word mean? And I was just so caught off guard. I was just like, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> just because I like, there's so many things to unpack with that. Like he, he only just started learning about what, what sex was. Um, like I want to say in the past year where he was asking questions. So I just feel like that was a whole other kettle of fish to be opening um, talking about that. So we haven't really addressed like that word in itself and what that means. But at the same time, we do try to introduce some kind of like, how do you say it? Like introductory level subjects that are somehow related to that. Like we, we talk, we try to, I try to um, talk a lot about consent, like not outrightly, but just in the way that I talk to certain things about my kids. And, you know, if he's bugging his sister and if she's saying no, I, I make sure he listens. I'm like, look, listen, she is saying no. You might still want to do that, but you have to respect her that she doesn't want to do do X, Y, Z. And I mean, it goes both ways. I do that with my with my daughter too. She's bugging him or doing something that he doesn't want her to do. I think it was more just when I had that flat out quest from him, like, what is rape? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, uh, nope, <laughs> sorry, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not answering that right now. <laughs> and I think that's also one of those questions where uh, this is sort of something we talk about a lot, but the idea of like answering a question with a question of like, oh, like, what did you, what do you know about that already? Or where did you hear that word? Or what do you want to know about that? You know, sometimes uh, the context can be, can be important. And also we want to make sure that we're, I'm sorry, listeners, because I use the same anecdote every time we talk about this, but we want to make sure that we know what they're actually asking. And uh, my, my favorite sort of anecdote to illustrate this is a friend told me that a, a friend of theirs, the child asked the father, you know, came to the living room and said, what is sex? And the father gave this whole big explanation about what sex was. And the kid nodded and said, okay, because mom says dinner is done in five sex. 
and also like to know what they already know about things I think is important. And, uh, and like you were saying, I think, I think that it's, you know, talking about what's age appropriate is, in, is really important. And so, so yeah, I think that all of those things and talking about, you know, like you were saying, maybe if you don't, you know, feel that they're necessarily ready for a conversation about what rape means, we can talk about, the, you know, sort of the opposite of like talking about consent and talking and even using that word. And there's a lot of great children's books about consent in terms of like, we talk about it. I talk about it a lot with kids with uh, hugging and touching and like with um, greetings a lot of times where we're like shaking where, you know, people will be like, oh, hug and kiss this person. And I'll be like, well, if you want to, you know, and there are lots of options, right? You can give a friendly wave you can give a hug you can blow a kiss you can you know do nothing stare vacantly whatever you want <laughs> so going back to anxiety a little bit um, people use the word anxiety to talk about you know a feeling as opposed to uh, actual chronic anxiety and i'm curious how we could explain the difference between sort of feeling anxious and having anxiety to a child my son would have been about six and a half or so when we first started really talking about it, when I was first starting to recognize it. And so this was the kind of conversation we'd have. And like with anything, it's like, it's a whole cycle and series of conversations, right? It's never just one conversation. But I think I, once I started getting a little bit more on top of recognition, I wouldn't say that I was on top of my anxiety at that point, but I was starting to use the language at least which was empowering and helped me set context i did get a couple of books for my son on anxiety and i have them here with me so yeah one is called what to do when you worry too much a kid's guide to overcoming anxiety by don hubner and the other one it's called what to do with a problem sorry what do you do with a problem written by Kobe Yamada. So I think one of the main things that we did talk about with what to do when you worry too much is that he was very curious about like what is a normal amount of worry and what's a not normal amount of worry. So we used images a lot. Like I talked to him about how anybody when they have a problem or when they had a, you know, a social interaction like with a friend or a parent or something that didn't really go well, it's normal to think about it. It's normal that it's kind of in the back of your mind and you're thinking about it. But then usually within a day, it's gone. Usually you're not worrying about things that aren't actually happening. Usually normal anxiety, quote unquote, has to do with things that have really happened or that are very likely to happen. And usually it's pretty short term and there are things you can do to make yourself manage it and feel better. Whereas an anxiety disorder, I explained to him, is kind of like this is your baseline where you feel kind of afraid and worried and on edge all the time. You wake up feeling that way. And that it's often worries that don't, to normal people, don't seem like you should be worrying about it or planning this far in advance for that thing. I don't know if at that time I explained it to him, but again, he's older now. We've had conversations more recently. And I think one thing I've been able to explain to him is that it's normal for most people to worry a little bit about things that are like one step away. You know, maybe it's not right there, but it's like kind of imminent. It could happen. So you you keep those possibilities in your head. You have like a, a possibilities tree and all of us kind of are aware of things. But when you have an anxiety disorder, it's like three steps out and you're juggling all this data, right? Because it's exponential. Like as you draw a tree in the like various branches, like you're thinking either like there's one branch that feathers out that's very preoccupying or you're constantly trying to stay aware of all these possible situations because you feel the need to be in control and to plan what will happen if these bad things happen. My wife, I'm just thinking about a specific example where she was like, well, what if, what if we have a kid and like this happens to our kid? And I'm like, Kat, 
are we planning on having children? She was like, no. Okay, then why are you worried about our potential future child like tripping on something or whatever it was? You know what I mean? And then she was like, okay, okay, I guess that's, I guess that's true. But you know, it's like those kinds of, like you were saying, it's like those three, four steps ahead of just like, okay, let's like take it back and be like, you know, it's this, it's not, um, it's not like, oh, like for example, something that I think was a little more, you know, she was worrying about, oh, am I going to get into Sijap or not? Right? Like that's, that's more of a baseline, like, you know, like, I could be, you know, worried about the, you know, the typical thing that someone would be worried about. Like, I just applied to something. Am I going to get into it? As opposed to, is my potential future child going to one day have something happen to them? Yeah. And when you have an anxiety disorder, like the thing is that when you're kind of normal or your symptoms are well controlled or whatever, you can feel the difference between something you're worrying about that's kind of imminent and something kind of like it feels less clear, less sharp, kind of more vague and ephemeral the further you go down that tree. And you're kind of like, okay, I don't really have to worry about that. Whereas when you have an anxiety, and usually that's how we tell ourselves, oh, I don't have to worry about that. I do have to worry about that because it feels vague. And that's how most of us grow up. And we're not even aware of those processes, but that's how our brain tells us this is not something you really have to worry about. And what the anxiety disorder does is it makes all of those things seem quite sharp and quite imminent. So you feel like, no, I'm doing the same thing as any healthy person would. I'm focusing on the things that seem like imminent and sharp and concrete. And you have to really retrain your brain to not trust your feelings. So it's a whole crazy thing. It is it, totally. And I, I was just thinking about that too, actually, as as Seth was talking about. It's like you you actually you you lose sight of what you know what is a normal what is a normal anxiety and what's not normal anxiety and ptsd especially really uh, you know can be make that very challenging and you know something that i've you know talked about in therapy with is is it is like reality checking like i don't always know even even though i feel like my anxiety is pretty well controlled i still don't always know what's a normal anxiety and what's not a normal anxiety you know and and then you know, I, it like, so I, and I, I was also very, um, I was also very lucky with my, my obstetrician, um, screened me for, uh, depression and anxiety when I first got pregnant and, and re- made a referral to, um, a, uh, psychiatrist who specializes in pregnancies and, and postpartum. Um, she po- follows sort of new, new, uh, birthing parents throughout the, um, throughout their, their pregnancy and, and after. Um, and I, you know, she was one who helped me kind of when I started to feel actually withdrawal symptoms from my medication because I, I, whether it wasn't enough really like uh, relative to my blood volume. So, so, you know, but I felt, you know, we talked a lot about like a reality checking sometimes because, because of my, my history with, with, with PTSD, you know, and, and the, you know, intrusive, intrusive thoughts, but also catastrophizing things. Oh yeah. You know, and, and I, you, you, you do, struggle when you have anxiety disorders you struggle with is this a real anxiety is this not and and actually it can be very difficult to tell the difference between and then and then i was telling my spouse this morning that i was going to be taking part in this podcast and he said what is it about again i said parenting and anxiety and he was like so parenting (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you know it's like it's like yeah i mean you know i clarified it with like maybe like you know like a clinical a diagnosis or somebody who really has like a lot of anxiety problems, but like more than just parenting. But yeah, I mean, you add throw parenting in there and all of a sudden you're like, you know, that, that thing on the floor that you had a vague worry about when you had a hypothetical child, all of a sudden is like a real danger. 
so it, 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 you know, your sense of your sense of security and safety really takes a hit actually when you, when you have a kid and, and, uh, you, and, and then you have this other person to just pour all your anxieties into as well. Oh yeah. And it's like a part of you that's walking around outside of the world. It's like a part of your heart that's really vulnerable and kind of dumb and is walking around in the world. And it's like, how, how can I cope with this? Being a parent, it's like, it's, it's at one, on one hand, it's a very like, when I say powerful, I don't mean like I have power over, but it's like, it, it, it creates a sense of, it can really ground you. It can really tie you to a place and a time and, 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 you know, your days are so different and a lot of the sort of like noise around you kind of just, you know, in the, in the world kind of just fades. Right. And, 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 and you, you really just become this, you know, this, this person that you kind of always figured you wouldn't be able to become, which is like, you know, you have to kind of be this, uh, like stable person, you know, and, and when you don't, when you can't be that, you know, it's really, it's hard. And we all, we all have days where we're not that. And, 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 you know, you try and, you, you know, like everybody, everybody is going to struggle with that as a parent. At the, on the other hand, it's like, I feel so like powerful. On the other hand, I feel so vulnerable. You know, this, the smallest thing, the smallest, like, you know, tug of the carpet beneath your feet and, and the whole thing can just fall through, you know? And so you, you start worrying so much more about, you know, the things you never want to worry about, like money, you know, <laughs> like stupid money. I have to worry about that, you know? And like, that's not something I ever, you know, not that I, you know, it's not that I, I, I it's just like, I don't want money to control my life, but now it is so much more important. And like, now we need to think about like savings and, you know, putting our kids through university and blah, blah. Like, it's just, the, you know, I like but so it adds in all of these additional anxieties that make you feel so vulnerable, really vulnerable to the world, you know? The one example that I give, that I give people when I try to like give an example of how my anxiety might affect me differently than other people is um, almost every summer we go to visit my parents. They have a summer place in Nova Scotia and there's a big ferry boat you have to take. Like it's huge. I want to say like almost not like cruise ship size, but it's a, it's a large boat. You park your cars, you like go to the little, um, like, uh, relaxation type areas and, and watch when we get a snack. Um, and there's a couple of observation decks there where you can go out and, and look and it's, <laughs> and this is what's so interesting with anxiety is that when you're kind of removed from that situation, you can think about it so logically where I know it's safe. The railings are very high. There's no way you can slip. It's very safe, but when I'm the weeks leading up to us going on that, I am a nervous wreck worrying about my kids falling off of this, of the railings and thinking. Um, and this is where it starts to kind of get into that, into that kind of overblown worry about it, where I have actually sat down and like reasoned, like, what's my game plan? If one of them falls in, do I jump in? What do I do with my other child? Do I like flag down a stranger? What if this stranger is a psychopath? What do I do? I'm like, but I'm not just going to let my child drown. So of course I have to drop off. Like, what if he falls off of the front of the boat? I feel like if he falls off the back, he has like a better chance of survival. Like, but this is kind of where, um, that's the example I always give people to be like, if somebody who might not suffer from anxiety or to such a degree might just be like, yeah, I'm a little worried about my kids walking around those observation decks. I'm going to keep a tighter hold on them. But for me, it's like, we are not going out there at all unless we have like two life jackets on each and like at least three other adults around that I can trust. So that 
all the times we've gotten on those boat, we have never once gone out on the observation decks. I refuse. And I'm like, sorry, guys, look through the window. <laughs> Are there other ways that it sort of affects interactions with the kids, with your kids or other kids in your life? I feel that, you know, in my, in, in sort of the, in, um, in my practice, in my social work practice, I really identify with kids. Um, and I'm talking more about like older kids at this point. I remember very much what it felt like to to know that something was not right and not be able to get help for it or to not know the words or the right way to describe what I was feeling to get sort of like adults attention. So when you know, a kid comes in having unfortunately attempted, um, you know, made a suicide attempt or made, you know, serious threats of suicide. I really, really kind of like, I just want to enfold them because I just remember what that was like, you know, and, and my, and I, and I really try to say to them, you know, what's happening right now is scary, but it's good. It's good. What's happening right now. You, this is like the next step into like feeling Better. This is the next step to understanding yourself better. These these are all, you know, like it's it's a it's a it's a shame that sort of they, that they, that that's the the place they had to get to. But the 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 end result is that now you can get to get help. What can we do though to make sure that you're not getting to a crisis point again? You know, I remember seeing a family and. I just, I like, I, my heart was just breaking, but also like over overflowing with love for this family because there was a a teenage son who was really struggling with anxiety and depression and two parents who were there with him through the whole time. They were holding his hand. They were supporting him, telling him it was, you know, that to, you know, encouraging him to talk. And I just thought like, this kid is going to be okay. You know, because here were two parents who were so tuned in to their, to their kid and, and were, you know, willing to sit in a really ugly room for so many hours waiting for a social worker to show up. It's always an ugly room, isn't it? If you weren't depressed going in, you're depressed now. Right? Yeah. (laughs) But the, you know, I, I just, I just really like try to encourage them to, you know, keep talking about these things to, to keep expressing your feelings. And, you know, when, when you have parents like, like those parents and who could really say like, yeah, you know, I really noticed, you know, when, you know, like X, Y, Z scenario happens, you know, this is the behavior that comes up. And it's like, man, that, that, that is like, that's gold to know that, you know, because um, you can really help your kid understand the, the like cognitive behavioral triangle the you know the like the like emotions thoughts feelings you know link and and help them sort of tease apart what's happening for them and it's you know I, that is uh i mean it's and it's sad. i don't want to say obviously it's not great that nobody nobody it's not great that anybody comes to the to that place to come from emergency mental health or because they've you know had a suicide attempt or thinking about suicide but what we can do from there is what is, you know, is what's needed and, and being able to, to make those, the, to ask for help. 
yeah, I really just try and encourage them to continue to talk and ask for help. Yeah. With my own kids, I think it's just that quick irritability. And um, I think this might also be tied in with my ADHD. And one thing that comes with that sometimes is like kind of a really short fuse when it comes to sensory overload. But for me, like noise is a big trigger. If I'm in a really loud environment and people are trying to talk to me, then I just can't handle and kind of... um, kind of like burn out a little bit, I guess you could say it. But so then for me, I think that's where I notice it and where I feel bad sometimes with my kids is that like, if we're out shopping and if they're both talking to me, then I'm way more likely to just snap and just be like, you know, just listen, just get in the car, just go, go, go. Ah! So I think for them, that's where I notice it, that it impacts my relationship with them the most is just in those situations where I already kind of have that baseline of stress in how I interact with people and my kids. And then when you add a situation that is also stressful, just inherently stressful on top of that, it's kind of like, you know, double the fun. (laughs) I think the consistent thing is that I try to speak to my son from a place of control. In the early days when it was bad and I didn't have a lot of awareness and ability and things like that. And I was more likely to like be impatient and things like that. I think even then I would try to tell him if I remember once picking him up from school and we were walking home and I was pretty quiet and I said, Oh, just so you know, like I'm a bit sad right now. So I'm very quiet, but it's nothing you did wrong. Like I'm just kind of in my head a little bit. And he was like, okay. And that's kind of just become very normal. It's a lot more rare now that I need to let him know about that. But I think it's so important to me to exchange this kind of like information with kids and to model this kind of thing, because he needs to know that if he's in his head, it's okay. And he can take a bit of space, but it's also thoughtful to tell people around you, like, you know, people can't read your mind. They might worry that it's about them. And, you know, the relief that he feels in hearing, oh, it's not about me. He can like internalize that. And and I guess another thing I haven't touched on yet for myself is meds. Like my son also knows that I take medication and my partner takes medication. And so it's like a whole family party kind of thing. And we talk about, I mean, we talk about medical things a lot because of my job and he's really fascinated with, with certain medical things. So we talk about that stuff. And sometimes he'll just ask me for a shorthand reminder, like, oh, what's depression and what's anxiety again? Like, you know, he knows that they're kind of connected. That's actually, that's actually the next question. If we want to just slip right into that, what I'm curious about talking, uh, taking medication and, you know, how do you talk to the kids in your life about that if you want to continue? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he'll ask me sometimes like, well, what's the one that you take in the morning or in the evening? And so I talk to him about those things and, so he knows like the one that I take in the evening was making me sleepy. So I have another one that I take in the morning too. And, you know, he knows about that. And I think like the, the really simple way that I explained depression versus anxiety to him. I mean, it's very personal to me, but I told him like anxiety feels like a lot of worrying and fear that you can't turn off. Whereas depression for a lot of people feels like you don't like yourself. You feel guilty or you feel like you aren't good basically. And he understood that, you know, he understood that pretty well. That's come from longer conversations and books and things like that. But that's my like teaspoon sized reminder. I guess my first therapist that I've had, I've been through a few therapists. So the one that I had at Argyle, I ended up not seeing her after a certain point. I felt good. And then she's since retired. So I've switched to another therapist now. But she really knew that I was interested in neuroscience. I was working at the neuro at the time. And she knows that I'm very like, she, yeah, she just, she kind of knows about my worldview. She knows that I feel in control when I can understand things, which I like to research and that kind of thing. And she also knew that I was interested in Buddhism. 
So she recommended a book to me called The Buddha Brain. And that was one of several kind of books on mental health and like the biology of anxiety and understanding the brain came in. So I've also talked to my kid about like, oh, it's because, you know, my amygdala is really overactive right now. And when that happens, you know, this is like the evolutionary reason that that kept us safe, but it's like, it can't turn off and I can't switch to like my normal kind of brain. I use that a lot with, it's it's funny because I, I think I mentioned that I have narcolepsy and my uh, my grandmother, God bless her, I love her so much, um, but she, you know, is just the way she is. And she, um, when I was talking about having narcolepsy, she's like, are you sure? It's just not because you're so stressed out. And I was like, and I was like, so my brain literally does not produce a chemical and my sleep cycle doesn't work the way that your sleep cycle works. Like it's, it was something that they did. A t- I had to do a sleep study and they said, hmm, you go immediately into REM sleep. That's not normal, right? It's not that I'm stressed out, you know? And, uh, and I think being able to understand what's happening uh, for, I mean, for myself too, I feel the same way that it helps me to sort of, you know, I like to understand what's going on, you know, in my brain and in my body. And I think, but it also helps us to explain to others, you know, no, I'm not just worrying a lot. Like my, this is what my brain is doing. Yes. And I love this because as I was saying earlier, like feminist philosophy, we might've been like before we started recording, but we're talking a little bit like the history of like white Western philosophy recently being really dominated by Cartesian philosophy, very like mind-body dualism, where the mind is understood as the soul, is understood in this very like ephemeral kind of way. It was like the ghost in the machine, so to speak, you know, and how like 21st century and 20th century feminist philosophy, and this is like a simplification, but like in a lot of ways brought us a lot back to embodiment and phenomenology. And to me, that was like a really refreshing gateway when I was a philosophy student, but it's also continued to be really impactful in my life as I moved more to the medical world and has been so important for me to be able to just kind of say to my kid, like, oh yeah, it's this part of my brain that's overactive. To me, that feels really radical, actually, because I feel like there's so much dismissal culturally of mental health issues because of this model we have of like the ghost in the machine. It's all kind of like wibbly wobbly and, you know, there's nothing really wrong. I mean, there's still so much incredible denial of just the reality of mental health issues. Like people don't understand. Because you can't see it. I know, but it's like, we also can't see our kidneys, but like you understand if somebody has a kidney problem, I'm sorry, you don't have to see my kidney. I don't have to show you my kidney if I have a kidney problem, you know, I don't have to show you my brain, but it is a physical illness. Like we have this incredible division between, between physical illness and mental illness and the way that we talk about them. And when I was working at the neuro, I was having this whole like kind of philosophical conundrum where I was like, why do we divide why is there this like historically harsh divide between what's considered psychiatry and what's considered neurology? You know, the more I was studying things and like a big part of my job was answering reference questions. You know, when I was a student librarian and people would ask us things and after a while, I just kind of felt like, oh, this is just a meaningless division. Like this is, there's no reason that we treat these things. And like somehow people will treat neurological conditions like they're real, Mm -hmm. but psychiatric conditions, like they're kind of like, you know, it's not like a real thing, but like, you know, I'm talking about like boomers, right? Like boomers are like, oh yeah, neurological thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have MS and therefore you have brain fog. That's real. But like, if you have an anxiety disorder, like one of these millennials or something like it's wild. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's all biological, my friend. It's all physical illness. 
And of course, there are so many social and environmental factors, but whatever the initial cause is, if your brain gets stuck in a loop where it isn't producing dopamine, even if the initial cause was external, that is a physical situation that you're dealing with. And so that's really important to me to talk to my kid about those things. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is, we, we, why do we not understand post-traumatic stress disorder as a brain injury? You know, it, it literally changes the, sh- the, the functioning of your brain. It is, it is, your brain is injured. The tre- the treatments we have for it, you know, obviously there's benefit to, you know, all kinds of, you know, talk therapies and, and, you know, for me, it was narrative therapy that really helped, really helped me with, with understanding my trauma and, and, but, and medication, but the same thing is like, you know, why you're, you're, you're totally right. Why is neurology not more involved when, when the neurological structure of the brain is changed as if you had an acquired brain injury, like a, like a force trauma to the head, you know, as if you had been in, I mean, a car accident, we understand it can, it can cause both a brain, a brain injury. You could, you know, a bump on the head and PTSD. If I really want to be honest, I think there's some turf war, you know, psychiatrists don't want to let go of that, they let go of their, their ability to, you know, treat uh, through medications and they have their role in it too. But I, I agree that, you know, you know, what is it that, that, that is really the, the treatment for PTSD is therapies and time, you know, and, and I get time is a big part of it. And, you know, and if you, if you let it go the way you would, if you let just if you didn't take treatment for whiplash or concussion, you know, time and it's time alone will not heal it. But if you take treatments and allow time, you know, your brain will heal itself. So I don't take medication specifically for my anxiety, but I do take medication for my depression and I do take medication for my ADHD. And both of those overlap beautifully and treat anxiety. So I don't have to, I don't have to be on a separate medication for my anxiety because it's kind of um, wrapped up with those other meds that I um, I am currently on Zoloft for my depression and, um, and it's, and it, they kind of like overlap perfectly, which is awesome because I find that the Zoloft along with treating my depression helps with those kind of, um, what I was talking about before, those kind of like more serious anxiety issues where I get panic attacks or like deep worry or anxious to the point of like not wanting to go outside and worried about like being murdered. So that, so that medication kind of handles that aspect of my anxiety. And then the medication that I take for my ADHD, it's just um, a stimulant med. I take um, Ritalin. That kind of really helps with the, um, with the uh, kind of day-to-day irritability that I feel. It helps so much with that because Ritalin um, really, for me at least, it calms me down a lot. It helps with my ADHD. I can focus a lot better, but it also just slows me down a lot. So um, I don't get that kind of like edgy stress irritability that I get um, when I'm not on it. I have broached the topic slowly um, and kind of tentatively with my son because um, my son earlier last year was diagnosed with ADHD himself. So we started talking to him him a bit about that. Um, you know, I had a conversation with him a couple of months ago because he's he's very self-aware. Um, he has a very high emotional IQ. Like he understands, he's very self-aware. He can label his emotions very well. Um, although he has trouble regulating them as a lot of people with ADHD uh, do. Um, so we have had that conversation before. 
I think that's the only time ever that I've, I've shared like a full diagnosis with my kids where I told my son like, oh, well, you know, um, I have this thing too called ADHD and it just means that our brains work a little differently. And if we want to, I always really emphasize that choice. I'm like, if we want to, we can take pills that can sometimes help our brains. Um, so that's the only time I've really ever spoken to my kids about medication. Um, they see me take my meds sometimes because I have them in the kitchen. And so far, I haven't gotten too many questions about it. Um, and I think that's something I struggle with because I try to be really open with my kids about a lot of things. But for some reason, maybe because I also still have some of that like ingrained social stigma about it, I don't know if I'd be comfortable having that conversation um, with them quite yet. Yeah, totally. But even like them knowing that they exist since maybe seeing you taking them and things like that is starting to, you know, break down that is normalizing it. You know what I mean? Even if you're not outwardly saying like, look, I am taking my Ritalin right now. It is okay. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I think that, you know, like you were saying, there is a lot of that sort of social stigma around medication and even, even within, you know, communities of folks with mental health, there's a lot of different thoughts about it. And personally, I think that it can be helpful for a lot of people. And I know, uh, I know it's funny, this is turning into an episode about ADHD, but my, I started medication when I was in the first grade, I was very young. And um, I had been babysitting for a family and their son was diagnosed and they were asking me, you know, sort of about my personal experience about because they were deciding whether or not to put him on medication. And uh, they ended up they ended up um, putting him on medication, but it's, it's funny because he became so self-aware about it. He's, he was like, like they were saying, you know, your medication kind of, I think the mother just happened to mention that the medication wore off in the afternoon and he was like, oh yeah, I could, he was like, I don't know, no older than eight. I think he's even younger, maybe like six. And he was like, well, I can tell because, you know, I start to get like really irritable. And she was just like, what? <laughs> like, you know, like, it's, it's so funny how, like, how aware, aware they are of those things. And yeah, it's really, I, I think that the idea of just, like you were saying, like, if you want to and it being a choice, but knowing that, like, if you do, you know, want to try it or if that, you know, if you, if that's something that you find helpful, that there's nothing wrong with it, you know? It's like a, ba a balance of like, you don't need to have it because you have a diagnosis, but it's, you know, it's there as a tool al along with, and also that it's not a, like the be all end all, you know what I mean? Like we still need to have other coping mechanisms and other kinds of, you know, things for sure. My, my Adderall would be nothing if I didn't make lists about everything. <laughs> hey folks, thanks for joining us for another episode of Bradchild Podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. Um, just a couple of announcements today. As I mentioned before, we're partnering with a kid's book about, uh, which is an awesome publishing company that has kids books about all kinds of topics that we cover, um, including depression and anxiety that we're talking about this month. Uh, so if you go to a kid's book um, and when you check out, if you use the code RADCHILD, R-A-D-C-H-I-L-D, one word, uh, you can get $5 off. So definitely go ahead and take advantage of that. Um, other than that, it's just the usual stuff. Uh, you can follow us at Radchild Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can do so at radchildpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to www.radchildpodcast.com under the contact us section. If you're interested in being a guest, uh, that information is also in the contact us section. We're always looking for new guests, so please don't hesitate to reach out. You can also find our merch either on our website under store or 
you can go to etsy.com and just type Radchild Podcast and our store will come up. And last but not least, if you would like to join the ranks of the wonderful Emma, Kai, Alex, and our newest patron, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Radchild Podcast. And there you can donate as little as a dollar a month and you can get awesome rewards like bonus content, shout outs, um, all kinds of different things. You can get care packages, even book recommendations personalized for the kids in your life. Uh, so definitely check that out. We really, really appreciate all the help we can get. All right, you've heard enough from me. I'm going to hand it over to Rebecca and Crystal. Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. I don't know if you have personal experience with panic attacks, but I was wondering, you know, how we could explain a panic attack to, to a child. Yeah. So for me, my panic attacks, I don't, I'm so lucky. I rarely, rarely get panic attacks. Um, but when I do, uh, it's, yeah, for some reason, like dizziness, I get, I get really dizzy. Um, like I mentioned, I get vertigo sometimes. And for me, it's, it's almost just kind of like a, how to describe it? Just like a heightened experience of every single emotion all at once. It just explodes. And then I just crash where it's just, I'm the most angry, upset, stressed ball for a period of about 10 minutes and just like screaming and not being able to, to function and then just crash and cry for like a couple of hours. And then I'm good to go. <laughs> I went through a really uh, tough patch right before Christmas where um, I went through like a pretty big depressive anxious episode and I had kind of like a mini panic attack with the kids in the car where it every it was um you know my my ex it, it was supposed to be his weekend with the kids so I was looking forward to this weekend to myself and it was my birthday but then he got sick with strep so I had to step in and take the kids so already like my plans were thrown off which like as someone with anxiety is like already throwing me off and of course I was like this will be a great opportunity to go Christmas shopping which <laughs> like not at all like kind of preemptively doing some self-care there just deciding to do, like the most stressful thing ever on an already stressful day and then my daughter had a birthday party to go to. So I was like, okay, I'll drop her off at the birthday party. And then me and my son will just go chill and like, grab a tea. And I get there and it turns out I got the time of the birthday party wrong. We were like three hours early. So I was like dragging them back out to the car and they were both just talking so much and not like being annoying, but just like, and I just got in the car and I just started crying. And I was like, we just need to have some quiet time right now. 
And they were like, baby, why am I? So I just, and I feel bad, but I did scream. I was like, we are having quiet time. So I just like put on some classical music. And then for like five minutes, if either of them said anything, I was just like, quiet time. <laughs> like, so yeah, I guess I did kind of, yeah, now that I think about it, I, I have had a panic attack around the kids. And I guess in the moment, that was how I explained it to them. I was like, I just need some quiet right now. I just need to settle to just like catch my breath. And then once that was done, I did go back and I was like, I'm really sorry for shouting at you guys. I was just really stressed out. You know, daddy's sick. That's stressful. Um, we did all that shopping. We were running around. I got the time of the birthday party wrong. It was just a lot going on. I was really stressed. I'm sorry I shouted at you guys. Um, yeah. Panic attacks can look a lot of like a lot of different things, but I don't know that in the middle of any kind of panic attack anyone's going to be like, This is what's happening right now. You know, that's not maybe the, the moment. Um but I think it you know, like you were saying, it is it's really important to be able to go back and just, you know, explain and talk about it and, and also and I think like you were saying, like owning up to being like, Look, I'm sorry I yelled at you and you know. I, for folks, a lot of folks with anxiety, um, plan plans and like sort of knowing how a day is going to go is like really important. And any, you know, little change in, in plans can be, uh, you know, really triggering or just upsetting. And I just think that I thought that was a good, a good point. Yeah. But then again, I feel like that is kind of similar to what I was talking about before with that, like how, at least for me, my anxiety sometimes manifests itself with that, like, um, baseline stress irritability, like, ooh rush 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 when I'm able to relax and look at it as well I feel like that also like adherence to routine kind of starts to buy into the same thing like oh but I mean like when am I gonna have lunch today if you schedule around meetings then like um unnecessarily spiraling into these this like panicked state which like when you're in it it's hard to recognize but I feel like it's that just kind of how when you have anxiety you just have this baseline agitation at all times so that a small thing yeah can kind of like throw throw you off yeah I I really enjoy routine I like knowing I like having a plan of what my day is going to look like what my week is going to look like like if I could it sounds so strange but if I could have like the same weekly schedule for the rest of my life I would be a I would because I know what's coming. I know when I get to, you know, when I do this at work, when I go to the gym, what lunch I'm eating on and like down to like what meals I'm having. Like if I could do that, oh my gosh, it would be like, <laughs> that'd be my dream. But then of course I just find something else to worry about. So yeah. If I were to put my sort of social worker hat on and, and thinking about a child who's coming in to, you know, parents are bringing a child in because they have, they see some behavioral issues. One of the things I would be looking for is uh, if somebody comes to me and says, ah, oh, my child like has these like, you know, a, 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 in their older, they're past the point of tantrums being like a developmentally normal sort of, my child is having temper tantrums, they just fly off the handle or my, right away I would be like, oh, is this an anxiety issue? You know, that would be something. I, and so I would ask a little bit about, you know, what what's happening for them again? What are they feeling when they have, you know, we know that some of the ways that, you know, um, panic manifests and I know this was true for myself was anger I would get I, you know I would just get into a place where everything just triggered my my anger and it took me a long time to understand that that was actually panic if we were to take that example um, it's you know quite common in in like adolescent boys for example you know tend to to um, to exhibit panic as anger so 
you know, if they if if parents are noticing this kind of a behavioral issue or what they see as a behavioral issue, um, you know, I would be asking about what does that feel like and trying to unravel that feeling, trying to get to the to the root of that feeling. And if and if they were able to say, well, you know, I'm I'm having anxiety, and there's probably a constellation of things, or there, I, I'm worried about these things. You know, I think what I would sort of describe an, a, a panic attack is when you, you know you get to that point of it's like your coping mechanisms are overwhelmed you know that all of the sort of tricks you might have sort of naturally that just are part of your disposition or things that you've learned about like you know maybe you maybe you've you know had some sort of exercise like breathing exercises or like calming exercises grounding exercises sometimes sometimes those things just don't work and you are just in a panic and and that's and and but but if that you get to a point where those things are no longer working and now you feel the only thing you can do to sort of express how you feel is to like hit the wall or kick something or you know throw the pillows around or scream and rage or or on the opposite side of things shut down you know some some kids just shut down and they can't you can't you know it's like head down they won't look at you that you can see they're like trembling you can see these kinds of like you know, there's, there's other, there's lots of different ways that, you know, people manifest. And I think explaining to them that there's nothing, first of all, these feelings can't hurt. They can't cause you physical harm. They, they're not going to, they're not going to hurt you in a long lasting kind of painful way, the way that if you break your arm, you know, that kind of thing. If you, if you're feeling overwhelmed by, by a bunch of emotions, that you know that there's things that we can do to try to to calm ourselves, but that this expression of of panic, if it's coming out in kind of a kind of like a closing off, uh, or or anger or like an obsessive compulsive behavior, um, that it's it's because your your coping mechanisms have been overwhelmed, that you that you're not able to for one reason or another. Uh, just slow down, slow down your thoughts, slow down your feelings. And, and that there's, there's actually, it's not a, it's not, there's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's that there is something that is just not connecting, you know, inside, whether it's, you know, if I was, if I was to explain it to an older, an older child, like a teenager, I might start using a little bit of this, these terminologies between like, you know, the stress hormones and the, and the brain and your brain is, is not able to shut off sort of like if you imagine here's a, like you know a straw and your brain is is like <laughs> your mouth and you're going to you know you're sucking like cola through a straw or something like that and you can't stop you can't quit that you know and that's what's happening between the like the stress hormones in your brain you need to stop drinking the cola because it's causing you stress but you can't stop that for some reason. And so we need to come up with ways to, to help you let go of the straw. And, and, but that's that, you know, and, and, and that's normal for you. And this is just, it's like, if somebody who's wearing glasses, these things are, are um, not in your control, but we can learn to control them and we can learn to work with them. So if you're kind of hardwired to not be able to to shut off the uptake of stress hormones we have to figure out what we can do to what's the workaround so uh, and, and that if i was talking to older kids that's kind of how i would maybe how i would frame it younger kids you know i mean i think it would be i don't know i might use the i might use the cola 
technology, you know, but like there, you know, you have to, you know, then I think there's, it, it, it's a little, you know, I think you, they have to, you really have to let them take the lead and telling you what has helped them. Like that's a, like a big thing is like, and that's what's true with adults. Like what has helped you in the past, you know, when you're feeling anxious and there's been, can you think of an, a time where you've had this like, you know, the stormy feeling or however they describe it, the bubbly feeling in their stomach and you found a way to make it go away. I had read, you know, I felt like as someone who has a partner who has depression and anxiety, it's my responsibility to like learn stuff about it and not expect her to be my default educator. So I, um, you know, I had read this really great now, of course, I, I'm going to have to find it and put it in the show notes, but I had read this really great book about that just sort of broke down coping mechanisms and different things. If you're having a panic attack, here's what you can do. And here's some things you can try. And uh, I, because this is the way that I process things because I have ADHD and I like charts and I like uh, lists. I literally made a flow chart of like, if you know, I made one for her and one for me. And the one for her was like, these are, you know, am I feeling this way? Okay. Have I tried this? Okay. Let me try this. Okay. If that's not working, get Seth. And, and I had one for me as, as well to like help me sort of like to make sure that we were, you know, and we put down coping mechanisms, for example, um, we, we mentioned before like grounding exercises and those might look like one, one that, that she likes is to think, uh, you could just name some things in the room. It's just something to distract you, right? Or it's um, could be one that she likes is uh, going through the letter, every letter of the alphabet and like thinking of an animal, for example, for every letter of the alphabet or a fish or whatever. I don't know why I'm stuck on animals this morning, but food could be anything. But those are, you know, some, so also knowing what, what, you know, trying to think of, you know, sitting down with kids and thinking like, okay, we, let's try this one today. And, you know, if that one works, then we put it on our list of things that work. And now we have a toolbox, right? That's so lovely. But anyway, Amy, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I definitely do. I, I mean, mine is going to be much more about like my personal life, you know, talking to my own son. So, so yeah, I think when I've had to talk to my kid about it, the way he perceives it or like what he hears if I'm like really not doing well, I'll tell him like, oh, I feel very overwhelmed. I'm going to go in bed and have a nap. And that's quite natural for me because that's like a very intense physiological reaction that I have to stress and anxiety is that I get very, very tired and I feel like I can't do much. I just have to go lay down. And sometimes I actually do sleep. Sometimes I'm just taking care of myself in bed without like any other stimulation or anything. So he, he knows that that's a thing. Yeah, he's very aware that I think actually we have um, my partner has another partner and she's over like a lot of the time she's over now. She like part-time lives with us and she's in bed a lot. And Ambrose knows that. Like I remember he got home from his dad's and he thought he saw a shape in the bed and he was like, uh, he was like, Oh, when did, when did she get here? And I was like, no, she's not here. And he was like, Oh, I thought she was in bed. Like he looks in bed to see like if she's in our house. <laughs> it's quite funny. So he knows that sometimes adults just need to like have time in the bed and it's like, they're not talking much and they're not making a lot of expressions. Um, because that's definitely how I tend to manifest it. I don't tend to manifest as like anger. It's either when it's building up, it'll feel like fear. And then when it gets to be too much, my partner and I have a nickname for it, actually, it's called zombie face. And it's something we're working on in couples therapy. Like when it gets to be too much for me, I really withdraw. I have trouble making eye contact. I kind of start to dissociate. So we're, yeah, we have like ways now of communicating about that better. But yeah, for my kid, it's like, okay, I need to go lay in bed or have a nap or something. And then as it's building up, he also knows some of the things that I do. So like if we're watching a movie that's a little bit scary or stressing me out, he knows that I will play games on my phone. 
And I've talked to him about it um, also like kind of in a brain-based way. Like I'll tell him, you know, my amygdala is really active. So I'm going to try to like kind of hijack my brain and make the logical part a bit stronger so that it'll like kind of take some of the force away from my amygdala and like kind of get other parts of my brain lit up for more balance. So I'll play like, you know, physics based games on my phone or things like that. And I think that's really great. Like that your wife will do like the alphabet things, all those things that are meant to distract us and engage other parts of our brain are really good for us. I had like a whole list of like, okay, here are the logical things I'm going to do. At one point I bought myself a book of math puzzles that didn't work for me that well. because it was like a bit too demanding, but I really use games on my phone quite a lot. And it really does help. And then it also becomes a bit of a meditative thing because sometimes all you can do is get yourself bubbles of respite. You're not really going to feel better. You can't break it. But if you're focusing on something for a little bit, it's like a bit of a, you can not be in it for a bit. So he knows in a kind of a general way that that's part of it. So he knows, yeah, that I use like distraction and logic and then I play with my phone. He doesn't see me feeling very, very anxious that much these days, but, um, but it will happen. Yeah, I think it's mostly like I would go in bed or maybe I'm like crying more often and he might come like kind of pat my back or like I, I still make a point to tell him like, oh, I'm not feeling very well, but it has nothing to do with you. And I remember there was one time that he had done something kind of jerky, like incidentally that day. And I was feeling bad, I think. And I think I was laying in bed and he came to lay next to me. I thought he was just kind of there to comfort me. And I realized that he was also looking for comfort and reassurance himself. So, and it's, I do want to say, this is like a tangent on my own tangent a bit, but like he lives with me half the time. And I find that it can be quite a relief for me when he goes, obviously it's nice to have a break, but when he comes back, it kind of forces me into mom mode, which tends to help to some degree. So, you know, he came in the bed and I'll be rubbing his back and then being able to focus on taking care of somebody else is another kind of distraction. And it definitely taps into other parts of the brain that helps shift away the anxiety. And after a little bit of like cuddling like that, I think he asked me like, oh, how are you feeling or or something like that? And then he asked me like, oh, is it because of that thing? And I was like, oh my gosh, no, baby. I had nothing to do with that. I'm just not feeling good today. You know, so as he's getting older, he is a little bit more aware of that. He knows that I like back ribs. He loves back ribs. I give him back ribs at bedtime and he's old enough now. He's like enough empathy that like, he'll kind of like give me a little back rubs or arm rubs and things like that. You know, so he knows like, you know, comfort is good. He knows I'll go in bed if I'm not feeling good. It's so important to communicate our needs and what works for us and what doesn't work for us. We were talking about this a little bit um, in the depression episode as well about, you know, just saying like, hey, when I'm feeling this way, these are some things, you know, I want to be either it can usually it's one or the other and it can change from day to day, right? Like maybe I want someone I won't want to be near someone or I just want to be alone and, you know, communicating like, hey, I'm just going to lie down in my bed right now. I'm just going to be alone for a little bit. Uh, you can teach kids these kinds of coping mechanisms too. I had a three-year-old who, whenever he he had some uh, some issues dealing with his anger, and when he would get angry, he would say, "I need alone time. I'm going to my room," and he would just go to his room and he would just you know do whatever he needed to do in his room and be alone for a bit, and he would come out when he was ready. And he was three, you know, like it's possible. <laughs> That's the thing. Like kids, like people underestimate children so much, but it's like no. If you- if you give them skills, if you give them vocabulary and model how to say they're sorry and like how to manage their emotions, they can do it just because you can't do it at 43. It doesn't mean children aren't able to do it. But it's also why it's so important for us to be modeling these things and showing, like you were saying, just communicating, you know, hey, I need to take a nap right now or hey, you know, I'm not feeling well. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's also a really important piece, I think, when it comes to anxiety and depression, when it's the adults in, in the life that has it, because I think kids 
tend to, you know, they're very empathetic and well, it depends on the age, I guess. Um, <laughs> but they can be, you know, very empathetic and they can take things just like we personalize things as adults, they can personalize things. And, you know, if we're not communicating, Hey, I'm just, this is what's going on with me and I'm not feeling well right now. You know, they might think it's because of that thing that they did earlier or whatever. So I think that just communication is just so important and teaching kids how to communicate by modeling it. So we were, we had sort of begun to talk about, you know, just sort of discussing uh, mental health with kids in various ways. And I'm curious if you think, uh, you know, that it's helpful or, or harmful to sort of talk about that stuff and be vulnerable about it. Oh my gosh, 100%, a thousand percent helpful. Totally. For so many reasons. Firstly, I think that if as a society, if we want to break down the stigma in any meaningful way, we have to start talking about it more and talking about it with um, younger people so that from a really young age, they're exposed to that idea that it's normal and that it's fine to talk about those things. And then also, I think just in keeping that kind of like idea of posterity and looking after our children to help them with potentially their mental health issues down the road, you know, if they're brought up in in a, in a context, in a society where those things aren't talked about, then how are we equipping them to deal with their own mental health issues down the, down the road, right? So um, yeah, a thousand million percent super helpful. Yeah, while I, while I haven't delved very deeply into it with my kids, I do try to label the emotions I'm feeling. If I'm feeling stressed out, if I'm feeling kind of down, I do try to talk about that with them. And as they get older, it's something that I'm going to be more and more open with them about. Well, and I think that's also really important, just the feelings aspect of it and just modeling, you know, having emotions and feelings in front of kids. And I think that I feel like it was really common sort of in in my generation and sort of in past generations of wanting to sort of protect kids and that meaning like not being vulnerable with them, like not wanting to cry or be upset or be angry or have these kind of emotions in front of our kids. And I think that it's really it can be really helpful to, you know, right. And maybe not freak out and scream at them all the time, but you know, to be to, like, I, there was a time where I was, you know, something happened and I was upset when I was nannying and like, I started crying and I was like, I have to make this a teaching moment. Like Seth is sad because this happened. And, you know, and, uh, and I think it's important to, um, for kids to see that because otherwise how are they going to know that it's okay to cry or have emotions or, you know, and, you know, and also seeing us right using coping mechanisms coping mechanisms and things to regulate our emotions but i think that it's it's just like anything else how are they going to learn if they don't see us doing it yeah i think we kind of we almost kind of owe it to them to to talk about that stuff and to expose it to it and and just make sure that they know that that's okay and it's you know they can work through it and it's not the end of the world i was thinking about you know my when i had mentioned earlier my you know my dad my dad had depression and and actually as you were just talking i just i just like uh, pulled together some, I just kind of re- figured out something actually. I don't think I ever realized that my dad was depressed in general and had like, a, you know, I sort of had depression going on. I, I think as a child, I thought my dad depression, thought my dad was sad because of my parents' divorce. And I think that I continued to think that my dad was sad because of my parents' divorce for a very long time. And I don't think I, I it, it was not until this exact moment that I realized that I was drawing the conclusion that my dad was sad because of my parents' divorce and that perhaps my dad had had depression for <laughs> longer than that. And then maybe that contributed to their divorce. But, you know, I, my dad, as I said, my dad, my dad talked to me a lot about his mental health, but actually I don't think he contextualized, you know, I think he, I think that my dad 
you know, I, you know, as I said, he sort of paved the way for me to get into my own sort of to take care of my own mental health. But I think I, I believe that my dad was in crisis mode a lot and he didn't contextualize sort of his feelings in, in, in sort of a, in, in, in sort of like the, the greater context of his life. I always just thought it was because of my parents, maybe because my parents were divorced or because of, you know, sort of situational problems in his life or something like this. I am very much my dad's t- caretaker. And that's a, that's a cycle that I've had troubles breaking even as an adult. Um, and that was reinforced when my dad got cancer and I was his caretaker through and he survived and he's in good health now. But I was my dad's caretaker through his cancer treatments. And I think that when my dad talked to me about his his depression and maybe didn't contextualize it in the same way that, that Amy was just describing, that it really put me, it put me on edge, actually. It always put me on alert for something bad is happening to my dad. And then when my dad got cancer, that was just very much reinforced. Like a call at two o'clock in the afternoon is always a bad call. You know, a call from my dad at two o'clock in the afternoon was a bad call. Something was wrong. He was in the hospital. He wasn't feeling well. And that has been, and that has been true for a long time, you know? And so I think that, I think that, you know, it's a, I think contextualizing, really needing to contextualize. So, you know, what is happening if, if, if you're, you know, you're open with your, with your children about your, about mental health. And I don't think you need to even have necessarily like complex mental health issues to talk to kids about what's going on. I mean, everybody has bad days and, and, you know, and, and helping teach them the skills to cope with their bad days, whether it becomes chronically bad days or just the occasional bad day, you know? And I actually, I, I think that that was a big part of my getting into this caregiver role to my dad and my my concern and anxiety for my dad that just continues to this day even though he's like <laughs> you know like a, like a totally capable adult you know it's just that it's because there wasn't a lot of context in that and that so even in this conversation I'm just I just learned something about myself you know that that you know uh, the, the the missing piece there was the was the context and I think you know my daughter's only twenty months old but I do try to talk to her right now we're going through this crazy thing where before she goes to bed she has to literally roll around the entire bed <laughs> and it takes forever for her to get into the exact same place that she falls asleep every night you know <laughs> like she just has to like and it's just like I don't know what's going on with her but I'm trying to talk to her about like. I don't know if it's working, but there's, I suppose there's no harm in just talking about like, it's, you know, at bedtime, we try to relax and we talk about, you know, you know, said, first of all, I say like Hazel's toes, they, you know, they want to relax. They want to go to sleep. Your feet want to relax and go to sleep. Your legs want to relax, go to sleep. And I try to like do the whole, the, like the, the body mind connection thing and try to get her to understand. And again, I don't know if any of this is working because she's 20 months old, but I figure the more I sort of start this now, she might start connecting some of this, like, you know, like how she can learn to relax her body if she's feeling overwhelmed and I are overstimulated. And I suspect a lot of this has to do with bedtime overstimulation. And I try to get her to bed. I certainly notice that if I get her into bed earlier, it's less, you know, she has, this, she has this overstimulation of, you know, before going to bed, to a much less degree, but sometimes it's unavoidable and dinner and bath take forever. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying now and I, I, I really, I can say it and that's, you know, I'm not really seeing a whole lot of results right now, but maybe we will in the future and she'll be able to like rely on that 
kind of coping mechanism. Like, you know, I, I'm feeling overstimulated. Like, let's think about relaxing my toes, relaxing my feet, relax, you know, like going through that exercise of getting in touch with your to, to different parts of your body to, to assess what you're feeling in them and, and how to let go of the, the, the stress. The, the twins that I nanny when they're, uh, you know, overwhelmed or frustrated, one of them in particular gets fixed, has some anger, the very strong anger of when she does not get what she wants or if someone has a toy that she, you know, uh, she, she gets very frustrated and we, you know, I'll just pick her up and I'll say, okay, we're going to do our deep breathing. And I just take big breaths. You know, I hold her against me and I take big breaths. And even though she's not taking those big breaths, she's feeling me take those big slow breaths and it does you know I mean, it doesn't always work it's not but a lot of the times it does help her to calm down <laughs> I don't know whether whether it's the deep the feeling of the deep breathing or like me blowing on her face that she thinks it's funny I, I don't know which one of those as I'm like exhaling <laughs> but it, it, you know it tends to work and I think that it's you know it's great to share those kinds of things even with young children like they can under you know they can understand like we were saying a lot more than we give them credit for and there were there were two things that you said that I wanted to touch on and one was the the idea of I think that they're you know I think that we can like you were saying contextualizing things is really important and I think that that you know we can overshare sometimes with our kids and we don't want to there's a line between you know sharing our experiences and burdening kids I remember after my my father passed away when I was 14 and after that there was this shift where my mother kind of didn't really, not like she doesn't have friends, but her, her friends didn't have any local friends. They'd all moved away and she had lost her job. So she didn't have coworkers and didn't really have any kind of social network at that point in her life. And, and I became sort of her confidant at 14 and the person who she was talking to everything about. And, you know, and I remember being aware that we had money issues and being aware that we had all these problems and, and being feeling really burdened by, by those things. You know, I would be like, I shouldn't get a cookie at lunch because we don't have money. And like, you don't want your, and I'm, and she didn't want me thinking like, you know, she didn't, wasn't doing that intentionally. But I think that there definitely is a, a fine line between, you know, overburdening kids with information. And I think that it's all about being age appropriate and meeting kids where they're at. Uh, you know, the, maybe the 20 month old doesn't need the whole scientific explanation about the amygdala, but an older kid might. And I, you know, I think that it's all about just meeting kids, kids where they're at is, is really important. Even if nobody in a family has, you know, any mental health issues, I still think it's important to talk about mental health and read books about characters, you know, who have depression and anxiety and all these and learn because like, right, even, you know, even if no one in my family is you know, a person of color, I should still be reading books about like people of color still exist. And I should still be, you know, telling my kid that, you know, these are things that exist in the world. And these are people that you're going to meet and interact with. And also, right, then if you're ever feeling this way, you'll, you know, you'll have a frame of reference for that. Like, oh, I remember that character in that book who was really worried. And like, I'm feeling really worried right now, you know, and I just think that I, I really, you know, whatever the topic is, I think that it's relevant to just like introduce kids to all different kinds of, especially through, I'm like all about ch children's books, but I think that's a really easy way to talk to kids about different kinds of people and different kinds of experiences, you know? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's so much what it was for me where I was feeling like I was only just gaining the vocabulary for myself. And of course I'm a librarian. So yes, I love books and getting that book was kind of like a scrimped and a launching pad that gave me the structure I needed to talk to my kid about that. So I totally relate to that. 
I feel like the skills I've gained from being somebody who deals with mental health issues just give me so many amazing insights and skills. It's just like part of my tool set in life now. And I find it useful in so many ways. Like these skills are really transferable. You know, occasionally if my son is stressed out or something, I'll say like, oh, do you want to do a guided meditation? Meditation is kind of part of my life as well. And either I'll lead him in one or we'll put on the kid one from YouTube and he loves it. Or, you know, if he's having trouble getting to sleep because we watched something that was a bit scary, I have lots of experience of, you know, being crowded by intrusive thoughts going to sleep. So I have so many tools, you know, like I'll listen to white noise. I'll try to force myself to think of something positive I'm looking forward to. Or like recently I got a Mary Oliver audiobook that I'll just listen to as I'm falling asleep because the process of falling asleep and letting go of control for me means that like I'm not keeping that door closed to intrusive thoughts in the same way. But if I have something to focus on, that really helps me. And I just feel like there are so many times as a mother where I don't think my kid has an anxiety disorder, but everybody will have stress and anxiety. And I'm a champ at managing stress and anxiety because of this. And that's helpful for everyone in my life. There's a really great book and I'm, I'm so sorry listeners because I think I mention it like every episode. It's called Love Your Body by Jessica Sanders. And it actually was originally, at least in, in Quebec, it was published first in French, which I, I like the French title better. It's uh, Chez Corps Je T'aime, Dear Body, I Love You, um, which seems less like a command. I don't want someone to tell me to love my body. But anyway, it's all about body positivity and it is it is specifically for, uh, for girls. At least all the people represented in the book are girls but there is a part in the book it's very like part of the book is very instructional where it's like hey if you're you know feeling down about your body like here are some things you can do and I was reading all the you know there was like maybe 10 little bubbles with suggestions and I was like these are all coping mechanisms for anxiety you know as I was reading it was like the same kinds of uh, things like oh helping someone else can help you feel good about yourself or um you know just you know uh do some deep breathing or just dance or uh you know it was like all those kinds of different things that I was like almost all of these are things that we used to cope, you know, in, in our home to cope with anxiety. And I thought it was really interesting how those skills really, like you were saying, they really are transferable. Talking about coping mechanisms, I'm, I'm curious if, uh, if you're comfortable sharing, if there's any sort of personal coping mechanisms you find helpful and how can we sort of explain to kids what a coping mechanism is? Yeah. So one approach, if, if we want to like talk about specific approaches, one approach that honestly absolutely changed my life when it came to dealing with any of my mental health issues was this type of therapy called Accept Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act. Um, and there's a lot of really great books about it. And um, one aspect of that is mindfulness um, and is also understanding that negative emotions that you feel don't have to be tied to um, negative talk in your mind. That kind of negative emotion of stress would turn into all of these negative self thoughts of, you know, you're stupid, you're dumb, don't do it, just quit your job, go do something else. Um, just just give up, you just suck at life, just don't ever do anything ever. And that was all just coming from the feeling of stress. So one thing that um, acceptance and commitment therapy really tries to teach you how to do is understand that you can experience those emotions and you can sit with those emotions and process those emotions and not necessarily have it connect to all of that negative self-talk in your in your mind so there's a few really really good books um related to that probably my favorite one was this one called the happiness trap that like oh my gosh i recommend this book to so many people like the author he should be like paying me royalties like i'm the biggest i recommend it to like so many people it's so good it has really good strategies so so that's kind of like the 
biggest coping mechanism that I think I use now is just really trying to self-examine and be like, this is just an emotion I'm having. I need to sit with this emotion and deal with it, but not allow it to turn into this script I have in my head about everything. Like, it's okay to be worried about, you know, like what's something that gives me a lot of anxiety. Like, I guess, so like I get a lot of anxiety around my kids and like their lives and what they're doing. And, and, you know, my son is like a really big source of that for me just because, you know, he does have ADHD and sometimes he struggles in school. So I do get really stressed about that. Um, and one thing that I'm working on is understanding that I can be anxious about that and it can, it can just stop at anxiety of that. It doesn't have to turn into like, well, you're failing him as a mother. Like maybe if you didn't work so much, maybe if you were there for him more, he wouldn't be having these issues. You just suck. Just quit your job. Just stay at home with him. Go to school, do this. Um, so that's one thing that I, that's kind of the coping mechanism that I use the most is just kind of trying to reflect and just like, you're feeling anxious and that's fine. And, and it can just stay, it can just stay as anxiety. It doesn't have to turn into this entire script about how you suck at life. Yeah. I mean, I think we can simply frame this like, these are the things I do to make myself feel better. These are the things I do to make myself calm down. And I think already that's going to be relatable for a lot of children, you know, when they're very small and they're very volatile, they don't have a lot of impulse control. They don't have a lot of empathy. You know, we all know that like small children need a lot of help to self-regulate. And, you know, even if they're not good at doing it for themselves, they're aware enough of like, oh yeah, these are things that my parent, caregiver, nanny are constantly telling me to do or whatever. So they kind of have that frame of reference. For me, it really is like I have apps that I use since we're talking about apps and sleep and I'll use a massager thing. We have a couple of massage tools. So I'll give myself like a leg or a shoulder massage. I'll sit with the cats. I'll go outside either if I can go for a walk or to just go on the porch. I'll look at baby pictures of my kid on my phone um, or I'll watch little animal videos. So yeah, I mean, this is all off the top of my head, right? But like I've gone through this so many times that I can be like, oh yeah, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? But I think too, it's more than a distraction with laughter. I think it does really change your brain chemistry, you know, like a good laugh. And I actually found a one, <laughs> this is so funny, whose line is it anyway is a good one for me. And the, all the older and the older, like uh, the older episodes that are all on YouTube, I actually find those great for, if, I'm, if I really need a, like a change in my, in my mood, if I'm feeling like sort of that, like, you know, like more like ongoing sort of anxiety or feeling, you know, feeling sad or something like, I, I, you know, a good laugh can really, really help. Uh, you know, it's not the, it's not the only thing to do, but it, it can really help change your mood. That's totally true. We actually, we, we, my wife and I watch, um, usually watch a TV show while we eat dinner. And that's sort of one of our, our ways to connect at the end of the day, every day. And uh, uh, we, we tend to watch sort of more, you know, easy to watch kind of funny things. And one of our favorite things, just nailed it basically it's a baking show where they take amateur bakers and then have them try to make like professional desserts and not even like amateur bakers but like people who are bad at baking and they're like here is like a beautiful five-tier cake with fondant on it like you've got two hours we're usually like it, you know they know what they're coming into and they're not like mean mean about it but but it's just like it's so it's so fun to watch and we you know we tend to try it and uh, you know, sometimes we'll watch like a serious show together, but you know, we, I think there's, there's just something about like watching a good, I think a show where you can get like a good laugh is like, 
it is its like own kind of therapy in a way. Those of us who have anxiety also become champs at being serious. And so I think a lot of people probably will be able to relate to what you said because yeah, indeed, I as you were saying that, I was thinking, oh yeah, it's it's very true that I've deliberately cultivated humor in my life and like finding, you know, comedians can be very, very hard. But I found comedians that I like and I have my go-to silly, funny, lighthearted stuff, and I've become much more playful, I actually think, since having this disorder, because I have had to, <laughs> and I have to stop taking myself so seriously all the time, and that's been really positive. Yeah, certainly, I mean, in the more traditional uh, coping, you know, the anxiety coping mechanisms, the ones that we, um, you know, grounding exercises, the um, you know, the, the five, four, three, two, one method, which is like, like using your senses and, you know, it, that, that one can take a little while though. I have to be honest. I do like to, you know, do like, you know, five things in the room you can see four things, um, you can hear. And even if it's things like, Oh, I can hear like the creaking of the floorboards or mm-hmm. the, you know, and that's, you know, sort of like going down until you're sort of to just kind of help ground you, to ground you. Um, I found that, I have a sort of, I use just the, uh, I can use that one, but it's often just like one thing per sense because otherwise I get too, it's, I find it a bit too involved. <laughs> I'll tell you what doesn't work for me. Guided meditations uh, and breathing uh, where I have to follow someone else's breath. I find that incredibly actually panic inducing. Yeah, no, I, 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 I really can't stand it. I, I get angry about it. I, I just can't do it. Um, I, um, I don't find crashing waves very relaxing. I have a, I have a, a noise app, and the one I find the most relaxing is brown <laughs> brown noise and uh, campfire. You know, so I I kind of tend to find you know there are de- there's definitely things. Uh, right now I'm baking like crazy. I think everyone is because there is no flour at any grocery store. We had to buy a 10 kilogram bag of flour in order for me to get flour. It's like a giant baby. I literally had, it's, I have so much flour now because I was making, we're doing dinosaurs this week with the kids. And so I was making like Play-Doh and like dinosaur eggs and I needed all this flour. And my wife just, I was like, can you just go pick some up? And she came back with 10 kilograms of flour. Anyway, as we start to um, close up a little bit, I'm curious if you had any other resources about anxiety, either for kids or adults, um, books, videos, websites, whatever. The Happiness Trap. That book is really amazing. Oh, I can't remember the name of the author. Yes, Russell Harris. Oh my gosh. it's And it's like, tr- people tend to think I'm like hyperbolizing when I say this, but I'm not when I honestly say it changed my life. Like the way that I deal with my stress, the way that I deal with like a lot of my emotions, that book changed it completely. Um, Another really good book on that subject is called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. And it's actually like a workbook style and it really helps you kind of work through the different approaches. Um, It has little things that you like write down. um, So I really, really love that one. And then for that type of therapy, like acceptance commitment therapy, there are some really good books on how to like use those approaches for kids probably um one that i would recommend um you can't really find it on amazon you have to order it separately because it's more of like aimed at like educators it's actually this full curric- curriculum called aim aim um except identify move and it has a lot of activities that all kind of centered on that type of therapy um and it's all targeted at kids so it has a lot of different exercises to help them visualize their emotions and how to deal with stuff like that how to like decide what's important to them how they can set goals how they it's just it's a really great curriculum i i love it but you can't find it on amazon you'd have to you'd have to google it but it's a really good resource and another thing for kids is there's a really good um series of 
books. I know I got one. Um, okay, here we go. It's, it's called like what to do when you worry too much, what to do when you grumble too much, what to do when your temper flares. And it's a series of books. You can get those on Amazon. I've gotten, I got the temper flares one for my son. Cause he, um, he went through a phase. Well, it's, he just, he's just like his dad. They both have really short tempers. <laughs> like, I think it's, I think this is a total tangent, but it comes from like, they're both such perfectionists, which is amazing and awesome sometimes. But it also, I find like leads to having a really short temper. Like my son would get so mad. And like, if he was trying to draw a picture and it wasn't absolutely perfect, he'd rip it. And like scream, and I'm just like, <laughs> whereas I'm like not a perfectionist at all. I'm like, oh, it's fine. Like we'll just do it again. Don't worry. So I got that book for him. Um, but I've looked at the other books before, and they're really good too. So it's that kind of like what to do when you worry too much. What to do when? Oh, I should get that one. I just know what to do when mistakes make you quick. A kids guide. Oh, I didn't see that one before. Okay, I'm gonna order that one. <laughs> okay, cool. Adding it to my Amazon cart right now. Yeah, so those are kind of resources I like. For me, I really liked that um, Happiness Trap book. And for kids, I really like that book series, the what to do when, yada, yada, yada. You know, I, I, I have to say it, like, I was thinking about this too. There, I have, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, called Big White Wolf, Wall. It's a, it's a peer to peer community support group for mental health. So Big White Wall is, is really an interesting, um, sort of remote, um, resource and you can you can access um there it, it it's like a moderated so this is the other thing it's also you know sometimes peer-to-peer can be actually like <laughs> anxiety inducing in it's of itself but there it is it is moderated i'm on the website right now it's very exciting if anyone's interested in looking just looking at what kind of research i'm involved in it's um it's uh it's child welfare research, and we we focus specifically um, on Quebec, but in in Canada more generally. And um, we do a lot of uh, we do research um, doing uh, work around um, like vulnerable uh, children and families, um, and so and providing increased social services for those families. So sort of before they've come into contact with child welfare, or if they're sort of like at risk of coming into contact with child welfare in, in order to actually um, keep the exceptional intervention exceptional so that kids aren't becoming involved unnecessarily with child welfare or um, supporting more successful reunification either with their families or um, adoption. And if people wanted to find that information, they would just Google your name. It's Ashley DeLay and it's spelled A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H, DeLay, D-E-L-A-Y-E. And you can find, yeah, you can find um, information on uh, the kinds of research we do. So I mentioned a couple of children's books. So one of them is called What to Do When You Worry Too Much, A Kid's Guide to Overcoming Anxiety. That's by Don Hubner. And the other one is called What Do You Do With a Problem? The author's last name is Yamada. I think I mentioned the first name earlier. Let me find it. Kobe Yamada. And I've found both of those to be pretty delightful. I think they're great for talking with kids. Again, my son was around six or seven when we read those. So that was the age range. And then in terms of things for myself, my top apps are WISA, which is W-Y-S-A. There, it's like a lot of apps. So there's a part that's free. There's a part that's paid. But I actually find the free part really, really lovely. Mostly what I use is the like chat with an AI penguin. That's Wisa. You you chat with this penguin. And I found it so amazing because 
there's a CBT component. You can also at any time do hashtag CBT. Cognitive behavioral therapy for folks who might not know that. It'll bring you through um, like figuring out what's going on. That's all free. And it's, it's really lovely. I found it quite effective. And what's great is that if you are a person in, in some way who's in an unconventional life or has an unconventional approach to relationships or something. So for myself, right, I'm polyamorous and I'm queer. And that's always a worry when I'm finding a therapist, because I don't know who's going to be experienced with that or okay with that. But Wisa is a, a penguin. It's not even a human being. And it's still pretty good AI. And uh, Lisa really doesn't care if I'm talking about freaky shit. So it's amazing. I love that. And it's been really, really helpful. I think it's available on both Android and iPhone, but I have an Android. And the other one I use is called Clear Fear. So that's when there are a number of uh, features within the app. So first you set up your safety net, which is people I can talk to, things I can do, and then like in crisis mode, people you should contact. But then it also has kind of like game-based interactive ways to work through your worry. So there's like little soldiers and you like combat positive thoughts and negative thoughts. So it's a bit different. I use both of them and I also use a white noise app. Let me just see what it's called. White noise generator. That is what I use. Big fan of campfire combined with rain and night sounds. So you hear little crickets. It's amazing. I am on social media. I think the easiest way if anybody wants to chat with me is through Twitter. I'm not a huge Twitter user, but it's totally public. And I don't mind if people want to message me there. So it's M. Burgatron, which is what I say is my robot name. Or Amy Burgatron in this case. Or I sometimes use Am Burgatron. So A-M-Y-B-E-R-G-A-T-R-O-N. So you can find me there and then we can chat or, you know, whatever you want to do. I also just wanted to recommend a couple of books. Um, there's one that I really love called All Birds Have Anxiety, and that's by Kathy Hoopman. And it's great. It goes through, it's sort of like explanatory of what anxiety is and you know what it might, you know, sort of what the experience is like. But it's all pictures, real pictures of birds. Um, and it's just, it, it's really funny also just because birds are hilarious. Um, but there's, there's also a companion book called All Dogs Have ADHD. That's about ADHD by the same author. It's by Jessica Kingsley, publishers who I, who I love. Um, they publish some really, really great books. Uh, and there's also another book that I will admit I have not read the whole thing, but I've read other, uh, another book in this series. Actually, they, there's a publisher called A Kid's Book About. And so they have a kid's book about all different kinds of things. And they actually recently made one about COVID-19. That's free. That's a free resource that you can get online. Um, and yeah, it's really, it's really wonderful. And so I read that book. And so I'm gauging my opinion of this book off that book because I haven't actually had my hands on it. But they do have a kid's book about anxiety that is, again, it's, it's more of a uh, sort of a science-y kind of explanation of what anxiety looks like. But it is uh about you know like for the pages i'm seeing right now for say like anxiety makes kids lives really hard anxiety doesn't just go away on its own you know this is a book about the difference between feeling nervous sometimes and having anxiety so it is talking about what we were talking about where it's like just feeling a little nervous or anxious about something versus having anxiety and it is about kids with anxiety um so that's another really great resource. I need to get my hands on a physical copy of that one. But they also have a lot of really, really great books about different topics. And then 
I also, for local people, uh, we were talking about the Argyle Institute. It's a really great resource in Montreal um, for sliding scale therapy. If if ever you need, I've had I've heard pretty good. I mean, like my I have you know personal connection where my wife goes there and has had a good experience. But in general, I've heard good things. The other thing is a, another local resource. My so at one point, my wife was having uh, a crisis moment and we uh, went to the hospitals for some emergency care. And my boss, the mother of the twins, my nanny is a nurse. And I was like, where's the best place to go for mental health? Um, and we actually went to the Montreal General Hospital and they were like phenomenal. Like they boosted us. They boosted us up. Like I felt bad because people have been waiting there like 12 hours, but they were like, the psychologist is going to leave soon. So we're going to put you in priority. Then at one point I was like, Hey, my wife is having a panic attack being around all these other people. They put us in another room by ourselves where, you know, I mean, we still waited quite a bit, but I mean, you're at the hospital, you're going to wait. Um, but it was, and then the psychologist they sent in, first of all, very cute. Hello. Second of all, yeah, he was, we were, it was so funny. He left the room with my wife and I were both like, nah. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he also was just like very, like knew what he was talking about and was very, and he was actually the one who led us to the Argyle Institute. He was like, you know, I, because we were explaining that money was an issue for us. And he was like, well, I'm going to give, you know, and gave us actual resources. It wasn't just like, go get therapy. And we were like, we can't afford therapy. And then was like, too bad. You waited five hours, like, you know, which happens often. One time I, I had an experience where I was with a friend and my friend's younger sister, who was about 16 at the time. And she had a mental health crisis and we went to the hospital. We waited like six hours and then they told her to breathe. I'm not even kidding you. And we were just like, what? Not even like, I'm going to do a breathing exercise with you. She was just like, just breathe. We were like, what, what? And this was like the specialist. We had waited six hours for the specialist to come. It was wild. So, but, um, but I would, I would recommend the general hospital if you're in Montreal and you're ever having a mental health crisis, we did have a good experience there. So maybe I'll just plug two therapy things that I know of. Um, so I did go to the Argyle Center in the past, and currently my personal therapist is at the Open Center. So this is an NDG, like on Sherbrooke near Vendôme. And they actually specialize, yeah, they specialize in like LGBT stuff, um, polyamory, like they have a number of folks who work out of there. It's a nice space. And when you're a queer person, it's such a relief to go into a place where it's like a given and they are all really understanding and trained and it's amazing. And another option is the Montreal Therapy Center. Their website looks like so slick and professional that it's almost intimidating um, because you don't get to know as much about the team or I don't know, it felt a bit less personal to me. So initially I was avoiding them, but I do couples therapy with one of their therapists now and she's amazing. So that's great because they have a wide range of languages and it might be a bit easier to get matched with the therapist. Some of them do offer sliding scale. So you know, don't be scared of like these kind of like big um, co-op type models, basically. It's so funny that you say that because I definitely judge websites by what they look like. Like I would look at something and be like, oh, no, this looks scary. <laughs> not go there. <laughs> so it's good to know that they're not that scary. <laughs> um, but anyway, I don't want to keep you for much longer. But thank you so much uh, for being here. It's been such a pleasure. We could talk all day. Um, so I just I really appreciate it. And uh I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And remember, stay rad.
Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Aaron Lakoff, host of Changing on the Fly, a brand new podcast on the Upford Network. Changing on the Fly is a podcast that dives deep into the intersections between hockey and social justice. We take on issues of sexism, racism, and homophobia on the ice. You'll hear from athletes, activists, fans, scholars, and even musicians who love hockey but want to keep the jerks out of the game. Think Colin Kaepernick or Serena Williams, but with skates and less teeth. It's your perfect antidote to Don Cherry and Coach's Corner. Hey, Don, what do you think of changing on the fly? Not the left-wing, pinkle media, bleeding hearts, guys. What are you, nuts? Anyways, you can find Changing on the Fly wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at changingontheflypodcast.wordpress.com. Hey, 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 hey,